You're listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast series. What does it mean to be selfish? Ayn Rand's vision of rational egoism by Tara Smith. Ayn Rand holds that the moral purpose of a man's life is the achievement of his own happiness. That is among the passages that's on your handout. I'm not going to refer to everything on the handout, but there are some passages there that you should definitely look at later on. Okay. So Ayn Rand holds moral purpose, achievement of your happiness. Egoism, my topic today. Egoism maintains that each person ought to maintain, ought to pursue his own self-interest. That's its basic thesis. You should do what's good for you because it's good for you. Now, the case for egoism is grounded in necessity. It emerges from our nature. It's organic in this sense, you might say. Human beings have needs. We have to fulfill them if we are to survive and flourish. To fulfill them, we have to act. We have to act for our own benefit in order to live, to realize our potential, that optimal form of life that's possible for human beings. Egoism is a matter of doing that. It's taking care of ourselves, looking after ourselves, meeting all of the needs that an individual has, material and psychological, immediate and long-term. Now, because all human beings face the same recurrent questions, moral guidance can identify the types of actions that are most conducive to our flourishing, the principles of such action. That's what egoism as a moral code delivers. And I give you just a little bit of the moral code mentioning virtues and values that Ayn Rand identified as central, okay? But notice, this is really important, I think, for the newcomers. And can I just ask, you can really hear me okay, because it sounds terrible to me, but you, it's relatively close. Okay. Good. All right, I'll, I'll deal with it. Um, so, this is important, I think, especially for newcomers. Egoism isn't merely its central thesis. It doesn't consist simply of the endorsement, pursue your own interest. Rand identifies specific virtues and values that are the meat of egoism's instruction. Okay, it's substance, and you should look more into those and things that have been written and lectured on about those um, if you haven't already. These are the kinds of ends and actions that propel human well-being. Living honestly, for instance, productively, with integrity. That's how you have a happy life. But even understanding each of these virtues and values, even that isn't enough. To live as a rational egoist requires understanding how the practice of these virtues and values, how that actually plays out in life. So my thrust today is to caution against an impoverished notion of what egoism is, having too thin a conception of it. Thinking of egoism as a kind of scarecrow that's left after you've burned away all the tumors from altruism, right? You've gotten rid of a lot of that junk, okay. But rational egoism isn't simply the rejection of altruism. I don't make sacrifices. That's good. That's great. That's where you start, okay? But then the question is, what do you do? What do you do? What should you do so that you can have the happiness that we can have? That's the territory today. It's not, I'm not going to give you a complete account of egoism. 
I've written on that a lot elsewhere. I've lectured on that a lot elsewhere. I plug a lot of things on, on the handout. Um, but today I want to shine a light on a few facets of egoism that I think it's easy to miss, but that are really important to success, to egoism's ability to deliver on its promise. So you do have an outline on the handout that's very simple, and I think will be pretty clear how I'm following that. And to start, let me say, and I think in a way Aaron Smith earlier this morning was, I mean, he certainly uh, indicated this. Egoism is a sophisticated enterprise. He was saying, you know, it's systematic. And yeah, let's, let's double down on that. What it takes to pursue your self-interest is not obvious. It's not self-evident. And it's not easily done. It's an enterprise. It's a systematic undertaking that must coordinate a number of components, different kinds of components. Egoism is complicated because the end that it's striving to seek is complicated. And it's extended over time. And again, there was a question this morning about you know, the long range versus the now, and we can talk about that a little bit later if you want. Being an egoist requires being thoughtful. And here I want to call attention to three aspects of this as a systematic enterprise. First, holism. Interest is not one-dimensional, such that it could be gauged by a single measure. How much money you make, how big an apartment you have, how your marriage is going. No, it's, it's not just any one of these things, okay? Nor is it simply a surface reading or your present mood, your dominant emotion now or these days. Think about when you see a friend who you haven't seen in a long time, like let's say it's been three or four months, yeah. how are you? And there's often that hesitation of like, how do I answer? You know, like what kind of conversation are we gonna have now? A deep one or a, what? You're like, oh, I'm in a good mood today, I'm great, you know, but versus this week, well, you know, I've been really depressed or, or, or the problems I've had these last three months and so on. It's complicated, your life, your well-being, the state of it, right? You can tell very different stories about it depending on what you focus on. My health is better, but my relationship is really, I don't know, I'm worried about my girlfriend or whatever. A human being's flourishing is composed of multiple components, health, finances, work, relationships, this relationship with that girlfriend, this relationship with your stepfather or with your lab partner or whatever it might be, right? It includes long-term and short-term dimensions. It's dynamic. Things change. You change, right? Your abilities may change. Some may wax. Some may wane. Your tastes, your interests, just things that appeal to you, that can vary over time. Life circumstances. Oh, now that I've moved to Israel, or you know, now that I've moved in with her, or now that we have a child, like things change, significant things change. Simple point, human interest is complicated. It subsumes a variety of elements of intricate interaction. Rational selfishness requires assembling a harmonious composition of the whole. It's not simply the linear path of a single concern, okay? So related point. Egoism isn't a series of one-offs. You know when you go to the eye doctor and you take those vision tests and it's like clearer, you know, which is clearer, A 
or B. I always feel like an utter failure at those tests because I'm extremely nearsighted and extremely farsighted. And it's, don't you feel inept? Some of you at least, maybe. Uh, thank you, all the, all the nearsighted nerds like me. We all feel like, oh, okay. But anyway, my point is, uh, you know, it's like yes or no, you know, clear or not. Well, being an egoist isn't like making these simple one-off decisions about that sort of thing. No, your interest is whole. So egoism, considered thoughtful egoism, has to be holistic. Now, advocates of egoism frequently say, well, you know, it's long-term, not just short. While that's true in a way, and I think there's more to even say about that, that's not the half of it, that is the long-term versus the short-term. Well-being is much more than a tale of time, later as opposed to now. It's deep and it's whole. It's got layers beneath the surface and aspects beyond what's within your periphery right now. Rational egoism has to take all of these into account. At times, we've probably all bought into an imitation of egoism by indulging in some shallow notions of self-interest, as if they were the path to self-interest, right? We've probably all done this sometimes and regretted it a day or two later, right? I ate too much. I drank too much. Oh, I should have held my tongue. Oh, I shouldn't have held my tongue. You know, I shouldn't have hooked up with her. The lore of the moment can be powerful. Your experience now, everything you're feeling and thinking and wanting in the moment, exerts a strong motivational pull. Yet that pull isn't necessarily in the direction that would be best for you, would be in your interest. I let myself stay out too late. I waited too long to start working on this. Rational egoist wants to learn from his regrets, from his sensible regrets, from the things that he should regret, right? Pay attention to the full gamut of your experience and think about the life you truly want to have. That's something about the holism, okay? So moving on, if you are uh, following with a handout, if you want. Um, second element, egoism is objective. There's a fact of the matter as to what is in your interest. You can succeed or fail. We often forget that with egoism. We assume, oh, this is easy. God, this is great. Compared with altruism, I get to do whatever I want. I mean, that's an easy first way to take egoism, but that's not it. That's not what Ayn Rand was talking about. Not if you seek your genuine well-being, right? You've got to figure out what that is. What course of action is likely really going to be best for you? Now, to say that egoism is objective is not to say it's scripted. You know, your happiness, Nikos, Soteriopoulos, uh, you know, is to be a philosopher or to work for the Ayn Rand Institute or to be into powerlifting or the music of Taylor Swift. I have no idea about Taylor Swift and Nikos, but I just made that up to start some arguments. Okay. But, but excuse me, I do want credit for saying his six-syllable last name. At least I tried. Okay, Soteriopoulos or something like that. But, you know, when in Greece, when in Greece, sort of in Osaka. Um, my point is, there isn't, so again, to say it's objective 
doesn't mean it's written. You know, there's that platonic form up on one of these mountains around here that tells Tara what it is right for Tara to do. No, you've got to exert a lot of thoughtful choosing to figure out this is really going to make me happy. This is really going to give me the kind of life that I want. So you get to exert a lot of choices about the shape that your personal well-being will take. But even there, when customized to you and your circumstances and tastes, what will actually serve your well-being is a matter of fact, independent of your beliefs about that or your desires about that. So the personalization doesn't foreclose objectivity. If you seek a career in journalism or music, or if you seek to emigrate to the UK or whatever, certain things will support that and others will work against it. So tailoring to your context doesn't mean you can uh, not pay attention to those things. Again, egoism has a job to do. It's to help you flourish. Having egoistic intentions doesn't assure success. I can easily be mistaken about what's in my interest, right? about the investments I've been making, the financial investments. Might turn out they're not as good as I thought they were going to be, and I might have had good reason to think they were going to be really uh, you know, profitable. You might be mistaken about the diet that you've been keeping because of new evidence that comes to light about how that's not really the best thing for your health. Um, you could be mistaken about the person that you've moved in with. Intentions also don't assure that the actions you take to succeed will be smart, right? Having a sensible aim, I want to do what's good for me, doesn't guarantee that we'll make all the right moves to get that. We miscalculate sometimes. We underestimate the influence of certain factors. We overestimate the influence of others. We misgauge the time that's going to be necessary to get something done. I think we probably all understand that one, right? Do that all the time. Uh, point again is simply, some things are good for you. Some things will enhance your well-being. Some are bad. The rational egoist has to work to figure out exactly what will truly be best for him, as best he can. Correspondingly, egoism requires conceptual level thought to identify what's in your interest and how best to achieve it. So again, this is all part of that, uh, again, the idea that, uh, that Aaron had adumbrated earlier this morning, that yeah, it takes a lot of thought. And I think something that Tal will be talking about further tomorrow. It takes really some deep reflection to figure out what's going to be good for you. Interest is deep. It's wide, it's long range. It isn't the mood of the moment. It concerns the full spectrum of your experience, the full 360, you might say. You've got to think about your life as a whole, weaving together all of the elements that give you satisfaction. The fact that you like to travel, let's say, or the fact that you like to play the saxophone, or to play poker. I mean, maybe these are among your interests, or you like uh, making furniture, you like making bread. There's the fact that, well, you're really good at accounting, but it bores you. You really, you get excited designing shoes or designing clothing, right, or something like that. The fact that, uh, yeah, you could make a lot of money with this job, but you'd have to live in that town and you find that town claustrophobic or that kind of thing, right? You've got to give your life an integrated design so that all of the different elements that are important to you 
can have a place in advancing that overall happy life that you want. You must always look for the larger logic, you might say, of your options to see what really, on balance, all things considered, is going to be best for me. What makes you happy? A happy person, not just, you know, in a good mood tonight, but what gives you that sustaining sense, this is worthwhile, this is, this is worth getting up in the morning for, this is fun. That's the life worth living. That's the kind of life that Rand is telling you to have. Nothing monstrous in that, okay? Uh, talk about no monsters here. All right, let me move on to common misunderstandings. A few of these. Uh, again, I've spoken sometimes elsewhere about a lot of misunderstandings of egoism, but I just want to focus on a few. Excuse me, what does that mean? Does that mean I've already spoken for 30 minutes? Okay, it's too complicated, the math, for me right now, but I'll just keep going. All right, I'll go a little bit more. Because, you know, it's complicated because we have this joint QA and, oh, my God, math and no sleep and whatever. Okay. So, um, but, but I think even the fans of objectivism and egoism can make mistakes about these sorts of things. And I know I at times have made these mistakes. So that's why I think it's useful to go through at least a few um, common misconceptions about egoism. So one thing is egoism is not adversarial. It's not a posture of opposition. It's not antagonistic. It's not about anti. Right? Keep in mind more generally that egoism is not a social doctrine. That is, it's not conceived to address the question, how should I deal with other people? That's not the question that gives rise to egoism. How should I deal with other people? Egoism doesn't revolve around your relations with others. Ayn Rand makes this very clear if you read her essay, The Objectivist Ethics. Correspondingly, egoism doesn't consist of me first and down with others. No. To primarily value one's own well-being doesn't mean you value only your own well-being. That's not the only value in town. In fact, a person's well, objective well-being consists of countless other specific values. His work, his hobbies, maybe his dog, you know, his pets or something. And usually, many types of relationships with other people are among these substantive values that give you the core of your well-being, right? These specific values, they're the stuff of your happiness. That friend you play guitar with, that, plen that friend you play tennis with, or go hiking with, or that boyfriend back home, or that uncle who you really enjoy talking to, or that teacher who you always find so helpful when you ask him a question, right? Some of the people at the reception last night probably either already are or will become real values to you. Not everybody. You know how it is, but, you know, got to be honest. Even people we don't have relationships with in any ongoing and ordinary sense of that term often do things that enhance our well-being, right? All those anonymous people. It was nice to take the elevator when you arrived with heavy luggage, wasn't it? Oh, where did that come from? Ask those 15-year-olds in France, where did that come from? They'd be clueless, really. Point. 
an egoist, would hardly spurn other people. Don't accept the caricature of egoism as atomistic. Have you ever heard that one? You know, oh, the egoists, they're atomistic, right? As if we commend the misanthropic hermit whose fondest dream is of glorious isolation from other people. That's probably not in the image of a good life for most of us, and it shouldn't be. All right, a few other things. Rational egoism doesn't exclude emotions and desires. Feelings are not banished. It's not, well, keep off the rational grass. No. An egoism's aim is his happiness, right? An egoism, I'm sorry. An egoist's aim is his happiness. Well, in case you missed the memo, happiness feels good. It feels good. That, it's like, yeah, it's nice. That's good. That's a good feeling, right? And that's why we want it. Want it. Oh, my God, that word want. Ooh, irrational egoism. Yeah, wanting, feeling. Yeah. Think about what happiness is. It results from the achievement of values. You can look at the quote later, on, you know, the quote from Ayn Rand on the handout, right? Achievement, from the achievement of values. Achieving is satisfying. Life is for the fun of it, the feel of it. But to get that, to get those feelings, you need rational egoism. Thoughtful, considered, conceptual, big picture egoism. In rational egoism, it's important to understand the rational is not tempering the enjoyment. Reason is not the, you know, the, the party killer. It's not a dampener. Reason is what enables your fulfillment and your happiness. I think the reason that we're, or one of the main reasons at least, that we're often suspicious of our desires is the legacy of altruism. Because when you're schooled to place others first, right? You know, you read the children's books that we've all been reading for years uh, that tell us, oh, always serve others, others first. That as your standing duty. Well, what you subconsciously learn is desires are dangerous because desires are often for self-interested things. And giving into your desires will get in the way of being a good girl, a good self-sacrificer, right? So I think it's the legacy of that in a lot of our intellectual systems that makes us a little wary of desires. But again, what I'm trying to say is desires are where it's at, to put it in a certain way. I mean, desires are what get the whole, or what gets the whole show off the, uh, off the road, on the road, whatever. I'm sorry, I can't really speak to that now, but anyway. Okay. All right. Um, point is, there's nothing wrong with desires. There's something wrong with living just by your desires. There's certainly something wrong by driving by your emotions, emotionalism, as Ayn Rand talked about, and again, as I talk about some more elsewhere. But uh, while you don't want to indulge in emotionalism, you want to give play to the good feelings of life and the good desires of life, okay? Finally. Another thing egoism is not. It's not innate. It's not instinctual, built into our nature. This is something that people love to say, oh, you know, we're all really egoists underneath, right? 
That's why you take the biggest piece of pizza. That's why the baby sucks its mother's milk. Um, that's why she'll lie, you know, if it'll get her what she wants. It's just the way we are. We often hear that, right? This is deeply confused. Rational egoism is not reflexive. It's not like a hiccup. It's not like squinting if you go out into the bright sunlight, right? The innate, right, that's the claim, oh, it's really innate. It's just instinctual. No, the innate is physical. That refers to characteristics that are inborn, hereditary, you know, like, like, you know, the appetite for food or sex, something like that. What's innate is pre-volitional and therefore pre-conceptual and pre-rational. To suppose that selfishness is innate, that it's a matter of physical impulse, is really to sink to a model of human beings as lo much lower uh, beasts, right? That's not rational egoism. That's not even irrational egoism. That's not egoism. Egoism is conceptual. It's deliberate. It's deliberate. It's chosen. It's using that free will that Aaron was also talking about earlier, right? Only rational beings could devise and intentionally adhere to it. So it's a, a considered answer to the question of how to use one. Egoism is a considered answer to the question of how to use your mind and direct your energy, again, to bring you a happy life. So, a few parting thoughts. <coughs> when, you first, when you first encounter Ayn Rand's egoism, I think it can feel liberating. It releases you from the shackles of religion, altruism, constant calls to serve others. Hallelujah. And that is great. It does that, but that's only the beginning of what it offers. It doesn't simply unlock the gates of prison and leave you on your own and say, all right, have at it, good luck. No, egoism's moral code gives you guidance, the kind of guidance you need to serve your interests to achieve a really happy, fulfilling life. Following egoism, though, it takes work, continuing work, continuing thought on your part. So yes, reject altruism. But the pursuit of your interest has to begin with thinking, thinking long and hard on an ongoing basis about what your interest really consists of, and then what's the best course of you, uh, for you to take to attain it. In objectivism, we sometimes talk about intellectual activism. Some of you may have already heard us at times talk about intellectual activism. My message here is be intellectually active about your life, not just about politics, not just about the culture wars around you. Be intellectually active about your life designing it in such a way that it's really going to make you happy. It's not easy to be selfish, contrary to popular mythology. It's not a no-brainer. Rational egoism is anything but. It's labor-intensive. Mental labor. It's an enterprise, but it's the most rewarding enterprise in the world because it gets you life. It gets you 
good living. It gets you happiness. And what Ayn Rand is saying is, go for it. Thoughtful egoism is the way to get it. So, on that note, thank you. And now Dr. Gatte will join me, wherever he is. And good. Oh, thank you. Actually, I'm not. Don't be shy. Yes. Um, okay. So my question is, um, as Onkar was saying, you know, altruism is kind of taught to the youth from the start. Um, as a college professor, do you find that college is the first setting where students are suddenly expected to make selfish decisions? Is it a system that fosters selfishness? And if so, do you think that students are unable to get the full value out of college because they've never been taught selfishness before? I don't think, um, I haven't seen college particularly push being selfish. Now, I mean, the natural circumstances for many students, not all, but many students who, for instance, go away to college and they live it's the first time for many people in the U.S. at least where they maybe don't live with their families anymore. So there's a natural kind of self-reliance that's much more just a necessity. Now, even there, you know, we talk about helicopter parents these days and even kids who go away to school still being more reliant on their parents and so on. But my point is, I think there are some natural forces that might inculcate uh, the need to be more self-reliant and self-interested, but I don't see a lot of college students over the years thinking of it in those terms, let alone thinking, oh yeah, I got to be self, like, it's good for me to be selfish now. I mean, a lot of what you see is them doubling down on the causes on campus of being selfless in various ways for the sake of the environment or the sake of the neediest of the year, you know, in some portion of the globe or what have you. Um, I don't know if that's the kind of thing you mean or if Uncle wants to add anything. No. It's just a system where you're suddenly able to choose classes instead of having them being chosen for you and you choose your own career. You don't think that yeah. the system itself fosters selfishness if you don't have the ideology already? I Okay, this is interesting. Sorry, I mean, it's all very interesting. Um, you know, again, I think it was Aaron earlier who was talking about, we're not, we're not raised, most of us, to give a lot of thought to what we really like, what we really enjoy or think, you know, we're good at and enjoy and is going to be good for us, right? So, yeah, there's a sense in which, oh, now they're starting to say, I have to choose a major, right? But even there, there are social pressures on the kinds of major, it's not like, oh, everybody becomes, in, you know, independent, they think for themselves, they think by the right kinds of relevant reasoning and so on. There's often 
financial pressures. There's sometimes family pressures. There's a lot of, oh, you're going to be a business major? I mean, I, I have had a number of students over the years who take a certain philosophy class because they need to fulfill a requirement, but they're from the business school. And they say that kind of guiltily. You know, like they're not, like they know that's a bad thing. Now, they don't fully always believe that that's a bad thing, but they know that's kind of a selfish major and so on. So anyway, so I don't want to get into a half hour just on the one, but I, I could, as you can see. My question is for Ankar. It's about the uh, about altruism. You said that the prominent uh, idea is that you should uh, give up because you produced, and then people should receive because they don't produce. But I, w I wonder if that's what really how people hold it in their mind, because uh, that's not how you experience it. Someone says that they want to give it to someone who is worse off, and that I, I think is more how people think about it, because some of them don't believe in production, some of them, uh, many people think that people who are wealthy are just uh, wealthy by chance, or and what they really want is to give to the uh, worse off, it's like this slave morality or, you know, that idolizes uh, being poor and, and being worse off, and the intersectionality and the weak of the weakest, so... That's my question. Yes, yeah, so I think there's a question of what the worst off means. And it, if you look at the actual practice, and then I think if you look at the actual theory, it does not mean we're looking for people who have not had opportunities. And that's what we want to bring them. If, for instance, if all the aid to Africa were really focused on um, in the last 50, 70 years, we're focused on, look, this, these countries are not developed. What they need to do is develop. They need a political system that encourages freedom, a respect for rights. They need institutions that enable them to earn and hold property. And so they need to become more Western. If that were really the focus, the aid would look radically different than what it was. The focus is precisely just because they lack something and they can't produce it themselves. That's what gives them the status of we need to serve them. And so I was not saying that the real meaning is at the surface. Part of what Ayn Rand is doing is getting to, if you really analyze this, what does it actually mean? And I think if you analyze it and if you look at example after example, of how they're functioning, I think it is. It is precisely the claim to um, the moral high ground, one way to put it, is that you have not produced and cannot produce. That's what entitles you to something. And the fact that you have produced and can produce is what makes you that you should be serving the whole world. And so again, if you think in terms of aid and how it's worked in the last 75 years, America should be um, sacrificing for everybody across the globe, including for Europe and for NATO and paying that way more than their shares. They should do it because they produce. And the other people don't have to do it because they don't produce as much. Um, so I think when you actually look at how it's functioning, that's how it's functioning. Thank you. Hello. I would like to touch on two of the topics specifically uh, that Tara uh, approached. Number one, objectivity. 
And number two, the adversarial component, be it that competition. Specifically when Ayn Rand said that there are no conflicts between the interests of rational men. So number one, on objectivity. Um, one of the things that you said was that um, one of the mistakes that people make when they think of egoism is that egoism might prescribe the same sort of cookie cutter prescription to everyone's life. That if we believe that values are objective, then there is a certain objectivity to what is the ideal life. And this is the example I think that you provided that Nikos would have to be a philosopher or that he would have to prefer a certain type of music. Now, typically, the response to this is that people have different preferences and that it's perfectly rational for um, even though all of us can adopt an objective ethics that we might have different preferences which might lead us to different paths in life. But one of the main counter-arguments that I've heard to this is that what determines our preferences? I think that the objectivist answer would be our, our premises, our basic, our basic premises uh, about life, about existence. And I think this is what Ayn Rand illustrated when she talked about a sense of life, that a man's sense of life, the basic conclusions that he makes about reality and existence are what determines his preferences. So what would you, what would be your response to someone who asks, well, our premises can be changed. And if reality is objective and we and everyone adopted the correct and objective premises, wouldn't their life paths sort of all converge towards the same goal, towards the same productive purpose? So that's yeah. number one. Can, I, can, I, can we talk yeah. about that first? Okay, sure. Okay. Yeah. Um, so a few things. I mean, a full answer, I think, would be a much longer I'll, conversation. But I'll, of course, okay. I'll, I'll so a couple of things. Ankar yeah. and I, presu I, I think, I know Ankar well enough to say that he and I share a lot of the same basic pre premises about life. We're very different people. We have some shared tastes and interests and a lot of different ones. But so my point is the premises don't take you the whole way home to like what's a good life and a good balance of activities and what content is in those activities for Ankar or for me or for, let's say, you, sir, if you share a lot of these same premises and so on. So, so don't overestimate the role of premises, even though premises are important. So um, preferences come from God, and I'm not a psychologist, okay, but preference, you know, there are all sorts of preferences and tastes that individuals have, and I think they come from a number of factors, not only, by any means, one's premises. Uh, though premises can affect certain of your tastes over time. Um, another, just two other kind of quick things to comment on. Uh, I don't think it's just... Right, so in saying that interest is objective, I wanted to caution against a kind of intrinsicist version of... Or, or way of, ex of thinking of that. So it's given, there is, you know, this is the career for Tara. This is the woman for Tara or something it's like, no, you have a lot of option there. That doesn't mean unbounded option. So there's a range of preferences, I think, within which I could choose this or that, and it would still be for my overall well-being, but it's not a completely unbounded range. 
Um, but I'm interested if, if he wants to to add anything on this. Yeah, I want to say one thing about the issue of um, moral ideals and what I think you're getting from Ayn Rand that it's it there is a conception that there's something that is universal here. That is that everybody should embody. But it what you have to get is at what level of abstraction is that point being made. And so the this is a common experience for people. I often talk about it in class, but there's people who grapple with it in this kind of way. They read The Fountainhead, and they're really inspired by Howard Rourke. And they're, they want to emulate Howard Rourke. And that's a real... Like, they should want to emulate Howard Rourke. But how do you do it? And you meet teenagers who dye their hair orange. Because part of what makes him distinctive is he has orange hair. And I, I mean, I've met people who do this. And I don't think of it as something bad that they're doing. It's just they're not understanding that the, Howard Rourke is simultaneously a portrait of a moral ideal and a concrete individual. And the color of his hair but take something a little more abstract, that he's an architect. I met people who would, maybe I should go into architecture or something. Or they read at the shrug and think, well, business, it's the that's what I should go into, not into the arts, because the people in the arts figure much less prominently in the stories. But that's not how to read the novel, though I can understand why people read it like that. So there's a projection of an ideal at a level of abstraction that you need to be productive. Or if you take the fountainhead, you need to be have an independent mind and be first-handed. But what that looks like then for in practice for your own individual life has all kinds of individual contours that are not applicable to other people. So some of the issues are applicable and they're universal. And some are then the embodiment of those that are individual. Okay. Uh, I, 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 really quickly, I just had a second part to my question. But I, well, we should not I, I let other we, people. Yeah. Okay. And there's a general Q&A at the end of the day today. Okay. So you can be first in line for that if you, okay. if you run hard enough. Thank you. But thank you. Yeah. Hi. So my question's open to both of you. It's about what Tara said towards the end of your talk, how it's very difficult to be selfish. And I'm wondering, what, what are your thoughts on cheating on your morality? And how, like when, when would be the cutoff line in saying, this person is no longer a rational egoist? Um, how big of a cheat or how consistent of a cheat would you need to to do? Interesting question. I, I mean, cheating is cheating. Like, if you're evading, that's a bad thing, right? Um, it so first, let me say, it's difficult to be an egoist. I don't by any means want to emphasize, oh my God, it's this arduous, hard labor, and oh my God, you're really in for decades ahead of but it takes effort and it takes work and sometimes it's, you know, a lot of thought and it's not always the easiest thing to do in the sense of the most comfortable or convenient or likely to be liked by people you care about and so on, right? So there are going to be aspects of it that are somewhat difficult, okay? In pursuing it, though, you may make mistakes sometimes. Now, a mistake, an honest mistake is not the same thing as cheating, Okay. Cheating is, I'm evading, or I, you know, I know I shouldn't be doing this, but what the hell? That's not good. I mean, that's not good because that's not really good for you. And if you really, it's like, I want to be doing what's really good for me. Then I'll notice, you really kind of cheated yesterday, right? And I'll really want to not do that again or to catch myself. And I'll be like, okay, be on the alert here and catch it. 
So it's not so much that I think it's important that we think about how to grade people. Three cheats and you're out. You know, leave the conference or something. It's like, but you've got to be self-reflective about what am I doing? Why am I doing? Oh my gosh, I found myself. Why did I give in to that temptation to evade there and to just, you know, not pay attention to what I was doing? You've got to really do some introspecting to figure out what's going on for you so that you can, if you really want to achieve your happiness, get on a consistently rational path to it. So I guess that's just a way of thinking about the kind of thing that I think you're raising. I just want to say something about this kind of question. So the, what morality is from the perspective of objectivism, it's about achieving and pursuing your life and happiness. Why would you want to cheat on that? What, there's no temptation to cheat. The, so these kinds of questions, almost always the context is conventional morality, where there's ample incentive to want to cheat. I don't want to give up every favorite thing I have. I'll give up my favorite shirt, but I don't want to give up my favorite bike. And, so, and in that sense, you're cheating on what they're telling you to do. And so there's a, the cheating becomes the way to live on a bad morality. But if you have a good morality that is encouraging you how to pursue your life, it's that you don't look at it as, oh yeah, but once in a while I want to cheat. Like why you want to cheat once in a while? It's not so much that you'd want to, you, we wouldn't think of it as cheating, but you'd prioritize your short-term pleasure for your long-term happiness. Like, I don't know, indulging in a, a cigarette here and there or, or some sort of recreational drug, eating a lot of fast food, um, Things, things like that. But I think, too, so a couple of things. One is, I think in the early stages of like, ooh, no, I'm, you know, I want to become an ego. You know, I've read some of this objectivism. I'm really convinced by it. I think in the early stages, it's, it can be tempting. It, you know, if you're not thinking of it fully consciously of what you're doing, it can, there will still be some of the pulls that you might have had to do what's going to go over well with certain friends and so, you know, which you're not fully even conscious of. So again, um, I think noticing the kinds of things that would be cheating, but also in terms of the honest mistakes, right? I, I said, look, if you really care about your happiness, you want to be conscious all the time of everything you're doing and why you're doing it. So that whether you classify it later as that was a cheating or that was an honest mistake, if it was a mistake, it was a mistake. It was screwing myself. Excuse my language, right? It was bad for me. I don't want to be doing that kind of stuff because I'm on the moral page of, yeah, I want everything that's going to be good for me. So I, I do think, I think Ankar's point is a very good one about the, you know, on wrongheaded moralities, cheating is how you survive. So we're incentivized to do it. Thank you. Is there a reason why um, the, the beneficiary in, in Ayn Rand's uh, ethics, the, what gives the, the, her kind of ethics its name, that is called egoism? Um, it is expla explained in, in OPA that uh, there are other aspects to morality, such as the, um, the standard of value, which is life. And indeed, Rand sometimes calls her morality the morality of life. And it seems as though she's drawing the name, the label from the, the, the standard of value rather than the, the, the beneficiary aspect. And so my, my question is whether this way of naming reflects a certain essential about ethics generally that makes the beneficiary more important in characterizing and labeling ethics, or is it just 
an, an, an optional issue. The label for, uh, of egoism? Yes. Yes. Okay. So, yeah, no, no. Uh, one of the passages on the handout, it's a, I think I just have a brief excerpt from it, but she says, like, the naming of the beneficiary, that's kind of a second, not kind, that's a secondary issue in morale, right? Her first question is, and our first question is, why do we need ethics? Like, do we need it? What's it for, right? And we didn't go into that in today's lecture, like, deliberately a delimited subject. Um, but you're right in terms of pointing us to the deeper uh, foundations for egoism, which is life, ha and at the very beginning of my lecture, I just said a little bit about this, you know, the case for egoism, the reason why you should be an egoist ultimately stems from the nature of life, right? The objective requirements of life, which are egoistic, that a person live for his own well-being and act for that. So I think the egoism... I don't think that's a misleading label in any way, but I think it gets to, you know, it characterizes the fundamental nature of the kinds of actions that are necessary for human life and human flourishing. Yeah. Uh, I'm coming to the sacrifice again. So uh, I understood that I, leave, uh, I need to be selfish. I need to live by my own sake. But I'm sorry, I'm having a little trouble understanding you. I, I want to live by my uh, own sake and for my own selfishness. I got that. But in the face of that, I need to, let's say, I need to wipe out entire population. And they are good people. I'm also a good guy. So is, is this proper? Like, uh, I'm sorry. Yeah, I, I didn't catch the last thing. Something about population? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, in the face of I'm I'm living for my own sake, I need to wipe out the entire population. Let's say I'm in kind of that position. Is this proper in that in that uh, place? Just to sorry, live for my own sake. I can't. I'm sorry. Wipe out. Uh, killing entire population just for living for my own sake. Oh. What is the context in which you need to wipe out a population that you think it's in your self-interest <laughs> to do that? Um, I, I don't have any uh, good context, but let's say all are wrong. That, that's the reason I asked, because yes. that's relevant, that you don't have any context for thinking that this is a situation that I'm actually facing. But it's, it's brought up as a kind of counterexample that, well, well, are you saying that if you had to kill a million people to survive, so you would do it? So, but what is the context in that when we're looking at what actual values and a morality for human beings, we have to think of the context in which human beings actually live, actually work, actually can survive. And that kind of context is, again, I think Greg will be talking more about this this afternoon, but that context is a context in which we need to be productive people and traitors with one another. That whole context, you do not view other people as threats to you I might have to wipe them out. I might have to wipe out a million of them. It's, it, you view them as their potential values. You hope that they're rational. You hope that they're moral so that they are productive and you can trade and benefit in all kinds of ways with them. Now, there can be situations. The reason I asked you, I can think of some such as war in which, but that is a very different context and very different considerations apply to it. But I do think there is such a thing as selfishness in war and much of the 20th century, and if you think of America 
and I'll say something controversial here on European soil, I do not think America should have entered World War II and bailed out Europe. Um, and I don't think it was selfish to do so. And if you look at the casualties on the American side, I don't think this was a mess that Europe created, and they should have paid for it. So there are real things to think about in these kinds of, but you need to think of what the context is, why, why you're viewing it. Like it matters if, if Europe was attacked by Martians versus they were attacked by people they appeased for decade after decade with the rise of fascism in Italy and, and Germany. And, so, and then you want the Americans to bail you out. That's a very different context. So there are contexts in which I could think your question is relevant, but you have to think about the context in order to be able to answer the question. Thank you. And I would just second that, um, right, I mean, to dismiss the, what's your context, isn't to dismiss the idea that, yeah, there will be some, there may be circumstances such as war, genuine shipwreck, or that kind of situation in which it's, oh, do I do what's good for me or for these 10 other people? But rem I mean, remember, there's no intrinsic value in life per se, the life of any other human being. And it, it's like, it makes sense to do what's good for you. Last question. Last question. Fast. Yes. Uh, my question is on Iran's stand on general orders. Do you think... Could you get a little closer uh, to the mic, please? Yeah. My question is about the Iran's standpoint on generals. Do you think it's true? And if so, what would be implication about homosexuality? I'm sorry, I didn't I mean, hear the uh, Iran's standpoint on generals, that man is a hero and woman is a worshiper. Oh, generals? Gender roles. Oh, gender roles. Yes. I'm sorry. Sorry. Uh, oh. uh, why don't you go for it? So if you want I'll to defer read, to the man. If you're asking about... <laughs> if you're asking about gender roles, the, the, the place that she wrote the most about this is uh, an article. I think it's collected in The Voice of Reason which is a question about American president or something like that, where she was asked, what would you do if you were the president of the United States? And her answer is, I wouldn't want to be the president of the United States. And she has specific reasons for that that gets into the issue of gender. It's, um, I think, one of the most important things to say here for the conference. It's not a philosophical issue. And she didn't view it as a philosophical issue. It's a psychological issue. As, as a novelist, she has a lot of views about psychology. And one of the things, so you can read that, but what she says in that essay, if you want to think about how I think about this, read my novels and you'll get, you'll get a whole perspective, which I think is true. You get a whole perspective on this in the novels. So she has definite views about this and about gender roles, how to think about masculinity and femininity. They're, they're as almost all of her views, they're unusual. Um, so they're not, so she does think there's a difference between masculinity and femininity, not in the way that it is typically thought about. She thinks intellectually they're equals, but there's a, there's a kind of relationship that is different. Um, so if you're interested in that, that's the thing to read. But I want to stress that this is not a philosophical issue. It's a psychological issue. And there's connections between philosophy and psychology, but they're different fields. Thank you. I'll just say one, uh, two things. Um, I don't oh, fully get it. I've never, in all honesty, I've never fully gotten. I don't feel like I fully understand why she says one, some of what she says there. Okay, 
Um, at the same time, I completely agree that it is a psychological issue more than a philosophical issue, okay? But I, I understand confusion. I don't get it. That doesn't mean I've thought it, that I feel like I have a sophisticated, developed view on the proper roles of the sexes or who should want to be president, why anybody would want to be president these days, God knows. But um, anyway. Okay, thanks. That was fun. Thanks for listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. You can also find us on YouTube. If you like this content, please share or leave us a review. For more information, go to aynrand.org.